G'day, I'm Mike. And I'm Sam. And welcome to The Extras. It's good to be back with you, Sam. It is good to be back, Mike. We missed you while you were uh, away. Oh, well, look, I missed you too, but yeah. maybe not as much. I don't well, know. Yeah. <laughs> we had Gary Koo in while you were away. Oh, and, fantastic. Uh, we had fun throwing around ideas on the start of Matthew 6 and on righteousness and all that kind of stuff. Fabulous. And, uh, Fabulous. It was a good time, So, but we're good, glad to have you back. Thank you, mate. It is good to be back. And uh, if people weren't back on Sunday night, what did we miss, Sam, on Sunday night? Yeah, look, we had some some strong words from Jesus, really, uh, at the end of the day, all about treasure and our gaze and about who is our master. And uh, Jesus was really calling us to single-minded devotion to the to the cause of the kingdom. Nice. And, uh, and, and really sort of putting in front of us some quite stark choices to uh, and stark assessments to do of, of ourselves when it comes to the things that we treasure, the things that we kind of hunger after. And, and really his, his call is that if you're, a, if you're a disciple, if you're a follower of Jesus, a citizen of the kingdom, um, seeking the advancement of the kingdom, both in your own life and in, in the world more generally, that has to be priority one and everything falls into line behind that. Mm. Um, so yeah, strong challenge and particularly pushing us on, on, on our wealth and on our, um, and our desire for the things of this earth as opposed to the things of the kingdom. Yeah, nice. I mean, it's awesome being a disciple of Jesus, but it's not always easy, is it? And the Seminole now it's pushing us to kind of go hard and go deep. And That's right. It do, it's exactly right. It does push us hard. And, and, and it, it is awesome to be a disciple of Jesus because that was the cool thing to see in this passage, that Jesus isn't anti-treasure. He's anti-perishing treasure. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, don't waste your time on something that's about to be destroyed. Nice. Get the real treasure, which yeah, is the yeah. kingdom of heaven. And I think we've got to keep... In order to do the the hard work of being a disciple and, and the, that single-mindedness and all that, the, the sacrifice carrying your cross for Jesus, you do it knowing that there's real treasure, eternal treasure, yeah. and that's going to be amazing. It's going to be worth it. So worth so it. Worth like, it. heaven is so good. Um, and uh, it's interesting, if you've noticed the little graphic that we've been using um, during the Sermon on the Mount series, um, we're trying to kind of visually capture that with the gold of the kingdom in that part as opposed to the kind of um, dull colours outside the kingdom and there's a little narrow road leading to a, a gate that is the crossing. Look out for this on Sunday nice. at, at church. And, and it's sort of that entry into this glittering city of glory, which is the kingdom. Um, just that the road to get there is narrow. And yeah, oh, okay. Yeah. Terrific. Well, mate, question number one, let's dive in. Yes. Uh, what exactly is the treasure in heaven and what do I do to get it? Great question. Yeah. Um, yep, treasure. I mentioned this a little bit on, on Sunday uh, at some point, I think. Uh, it's a, a Treasure is a, a bit of vocab that's sort of seen. It's not unique to Matthew's Gospel. You get it in a few other places. Um, uh, but generally when Jesus uses it, uh, he's talking about the kingdom itself. That is the treasure. The treasure is the kingdom. The okay. treasure is the kingdom. And uh, I think I took us on Sunday to uh, Matthew thirteen forty four, um, And Jesus says there in Matthew 13, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Um, and then you look at 45 again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls when he found one priceless pearl he went and sold everything he had and bought it and so big picture the kingdom itself citizenship in the kingdom being being one of God's children having a relationship with God and then having your eternal future secure is um, that is the treasure 
So how, how do we get that truth? How do you get it? Uh, it's by putting putting your faith in Jesus. Um, he gives it to you for free. It's not treasure that you earn. It's not something that you work for and get. Um, it's treasure that God gives by grace to people like you and me who are sinners, who don't deserve it, but who, who recognize their problem and turn to Jesus. And that's really what the whole... Um, start of the Sermon on the Mount was all about. If you can remember all the way back to Matthew chapter 5 and the very first beatitude, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They, they, it's the poor in spirit that those who, who come and say, God, I am spiritually bankrupt. I have nothing to offer. Uh, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That, that if you own it, it's yours. And all you have to do is come to God with an empty hand and say, I got nothing, and Jesus has done it all for me, and God gives those people the kingdom. That's that's the message of the gospel. That's grace, and awesome. it's uh, it's good news. Awesome. Thank you. There's a great place to start. Yeah. Okay, let's dive in some details in verses 22 to 24. Yes. Now you said really helpfully on Sunday uh, that what we look at is often what we love and what shapes us. Mm. Um, but there's a, a question that's kind of just asking for a bit of clarification. The verse kind of says it's the eyes that are good or bad. Not what we look at. So, yes. can you please clarify? Yes, it does say that. It talks about having good eyes or bad eyes. And if you only read that part of the uh, that part of the passage, you might think maybe it's about seeing clearly or not seeing clearly. Um, but I think that perhaps misses uh, exactly what Jesus is talking about there, because you have to read the start of verse twenty-two to get the sense of what the figure of speech is here. Um, the start of twenty-two, he says, "The eye is the lamp of the body." And so, if you think about the image there it's almost like your eyes are two projectors you know data projectors that kind of shoot light they, they're the lamp and and they shoot light in um, now we know how eyes work that they're receptors and we know a lot about but but that's the image there it's like there's stuff shining in and then it shines into the body it either shines light in or darkness in and so that, that that's what now uh, that that's what the image is getting at and so the question therefore is what kind of light is being shined in? Is it good or bad? Mm. And, and then there's another little layer to it as well. I didn't quite get there on Sunday night, but there's a, another a figure of speech in Jewish culture of, of the first century that to, to have a bad eye actually means to be greedy. That, mm. That's the way you would um, describe someone. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, sometimes little kind of figures of speech like yeah, that, yeah. that are kind of particular to little culture. So I, I do wonder if Jesus here... He's kind of catch, catching up on that little play on words. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't go, to, wouldn't kind of die on that hill necessarily. <laughs> that's exactly what Jesus is doing. But it is interesting that in this yeah. context, that's all about treasure and about um, yeah, what um, what you love and about who your master is. Is it God or money? Yeah. He uses the little figure about eyes yeah. and the little. You've got a bad eye or a good eye. Are you greedy or are you yeah? So so really, it is looking at what he, what is. What lights are shining into your body, and that really the question there is: What are you gazing at? What what's your nice. what are your eyes fixed on? And we talked about kind of actual vision, but also the vision of your heart. Are your eyes fixed up on Jesus or not? I think that's that's the figure of speech. That clarifies. Thanks, mate. Um, going back a little bit about uh, treasure, uh, Jesus offers treasure in heaven, uh, which is the kingdom, eternal life. Um, and you said on Sunday that nothing can take that away because mm. Jesus is such a great and gracious giver. Yes. Uh, but what does this mean for the person who accepts the treasure mm. but then falls away? It's not exactly from Matthew 6, but someone's mm. thinking bigger picture, which is a great thing to do. Yep. Uh, is this treasure therefore limited in some way? In some way, that yeah. perhaps, yeah, that because because of those who fall away. Yep. Look, um, 
I mean, which really brings the, the bigger question behind that one is what about those who fall away? Nice. Um, I'd want to keep reaffirming what Jesus says. Um, and maybe it's helpful to look at how Peter phrases it. Um, it's very interesting that um, in, if you look at the books of 1 and 2 Peter, Peter has a lot of Jesus' thoughts, kind of like most of the Bible, but <laughs> particularly is kind of very much um, Jesus' thoughts rolling out. And it's in 1 Peter chapter 1 when, when um, Peter's talking about the resurrection and, and, and the great... Um, goodness of, of what comes to us through the resurrection. He says in 1, 1 Peter 1 verse 3, he says, praise, God and, uh, praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance, or we could use the word treasure there, uh, that is imperishable, uncorrupted and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And then verse 5, you are being protected by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And it's interesting that the little, uh, both things are protected. The, the, the treasure, the inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It's, it's safe in heaven. And as Jesus says, um, rust can't get it, moths can't get it. There's no thieves that can break in and steal it because it's in God's, God's kingdom. Yep. Uh, but then interesting, verse 5, you are being shielded by God's power through faith. And uh, for for the salvation that will be revealed in the last day, and so there's a promise there in one Peter one that God holds on to those who are His. Um, Jesus says in John's Gospel, "I know my sheep by name," um, and God, uh, Jesus will lose none of those that the Father has given to Him. Mm. And so there's there's a, a, a deep assurance that Jesus gives us that those who are truly Christ's, who actually belong to Him. He won't let go of any of them. And in fact, 1 Peter 1 verse 5 says God shields them by faith uh, until the very end. So, so the, saints, the, the saints will persevere. Fabulous. Which then gets you to say, well, what about those who yeah. sort of seem to start yeah, yeah. and then fall away? Yep. Um, well, uh, at one level, we haven't seen the end point for them yet. Um, the true saints will persevere. And I can tell you story after story of someone who at one point began a relationship with Christ, then gave up for whatever reason, and then God in his grace, because he doesn't let go of the sheep that he loves, mm. uh, draws them back uh, mm. to, to true faith. Um, and uh, uh, it's interesting, my mum's one of those people, um, Christian in her younger years, uh, walked away from Christ for 30 years and then converted in her 50s um, through the ministry of someone at our church, actually. And uh, But she would say to you now, oh, yes, I called myself a Christian as a teenager and as a young adult, but I wasn't. Yeah. I didn't know the gospel like I did now. Now, those who knew her at 22 when she walked away from Jesus and walked away from church would have been thinking, oh, my gosh, she's fallen away. Truth is, she wasn't actually ever in at that point. Yeah. It's only when she was actually converted in her 50s that she really came into yep. to the kingdom. Now, the thing is that we don't know yep. the state of people's hearts. We don't have the access to that. And so from a very human level, we, we think, oh my gosh, this person who made a profession of faith has now walked away. And that rightly grieves us and we're worried for them. But the thing to know is God knows where their heart is. God knows whether they're his or not. And the promise of the scriptures is those who are his, he won't let go of. Now, it may be that they're not his, mm. um, but it may also be that they are his and so what's the answer? We'll just keep preaching the gospel. Mm. Because how do the elect come home? How do those who belong to Jesus come into the kingdom? It says the gospel uh, of the Lord Jesus, the message of, of the forgiveness of sins and repentance into faith and obedience. As that is preached, uh, God's people respond and are, are given new life and come into the kingdom. So if you've got a friend who's fallen away and... Uh, 
preach the gospel to them because nice. uh, that's how the elect come home. Terrific. There you go. Thank you. That's great. Okay. Um, uh, the, the passage Sam talks about worry and, and so it's raised issues of kind of anxiety and um, questions have come in around this. Uh, how do we best deal with food and life if we do have an anxiety disorder mm. is it the same thing or might it mean something else mm. and then uh, a related question this type of worry is not the irrational anxiety of mental illness which you mentioned on Sunday yep. um, uh, what are some good passages to help those who are suffering anxiety disorders mm. Uh, good questions and uh, important questions to think through pastorally yeah. and sensitively, um, partly just because of the sheer prevalence of um, anxiety, uh, clinical anxiety and, and depression and those related mental health disorders. Um, they are increasing statistically. That the, the, uh, I did have a whole section on this on, on Sunday that ended up not getting into the <laughs> Time you only have so many minutes, um, but the stats are alarming. Yes, uh, in terms of um, Australians dealing with with uh, anxiety disorders, it's now over one in five with it with a, an anxiety disorder. That's awful. That's a huge statistic. Yeah, that's and, very uh, sad. So it means in a room like church on Sunday night, you know, we've got well over two hundred people. At night, um, yeah, yeah, we're talking about forty plus of them um, struggling with, with yeah. statistically speaking sure. yeah, uh, struggling with it with an anxiety disorder and then and what can happen is a passage like this puts a burden on someone like that yes uh, where they they feel and and even sometimes Christians as they as they teach through these passages we'll, we'll see I mean the Holman's um, uh, title here is the cure for anxiety which, <laughs> I mean, uh, it, it sort of and then there can be all sorts of guilt kind of line up with that which is that yes. I have a clinical anxiety disorder and I'm, am I sinning because my yes. brain can't stop worrying about these things and yes. um, and sometimes preachers uh, will, will say that kind of thing and, and I think put a, put an unhelpful load on um, the person with, with those kind of things uh, what, what do we do about that I think the first thing to say is um, like any other illness um, you Yes, you want to pray about it and you want to talk to God about it and it's part of your discipleship to work through, but it's also something that needs professional mental health uh, help, uh, yep. mental health help. Um, <laughs> uh, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't break your leg and then just pray about it. Um, you, you would pray about it as you go to the doctor and getting a plaster cast and getting all the help that you need. And God often provides um, help and uh, healing and restoration through medical care. So uh, that's the first thing that I would say. Um, the second thing I would say is I'm not sure that the Bible anywhere directly addresses clinical mental health. Right. Uh, it does talk about worry and anxiety, uh, which are actually common to all humans, not just the, those with the clinical worries. Um, and so, uh, yes, absolutely. You know, um, Philippians 4 talks about um, uh, don't be anxious about anything, but, but through prayer and petition present your request to God. Many of the Psalms kind of um, express deep anxiety and worry and yes. then an intention to kind of um, call on God for you know to, to put your trust in God even in light of your worries but I think I wouldn't want to say that any one of those particularly deals with clinical anxiety per se any more that it um, than the whole Bible deals with with that kind of stuff by showing us God's plans in the world um, so yeah I would say that that's going to be for someone who's a worrier this is going to be a passage that, that does stand out um, massively though I don't think that's what Jesus has his eye on he's rather saying, 
what are you serving? What are you treasuring? What, what are your concerns in this world? Are they the kingdom or are they wealth? More than he's saying, do you have an anxious disposition? Does that do you have anything to add to that? So uh, perhaps there's no one particular good passage that's going to help a person, mm. um, but actually all of Scripture is going to be helpful yes. because it's all going to reveal to us a God of love and a God of comfort and a God who offers... Um, restoration ultimately yeah and so as we keep coming under scripture just regularly generally that's going to help anyone with whatever yeah um, issue rather than saying there's a specific verse that you need to memorize and own and yeah that's, that's right with that and, specific and, issue and i would say to the person with 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 anxiety and an anxiety disorder um, as you are anxious and you get mental health help and all that kind of stuff, um, don't forget the big themes of the Bible. That is, God is the sovereign creator of the world. God knows your days and has planned them. God has a plan for you and for the world, yep. and you can trust him. Um, now, you will struggle yes. with that yep. uh, through your particular lens of your anxiety, but you can trust him. Yes. Um, and so keep preaching that truth to yourself, I think, nice. is the answer. And and in passages like Philippians four might might help yeah. in that front, but I don't. Again, I don't think that's what Philippians four is. Yeah, designed to shoot at in terms of here's the verse for the person with the clinical disorder. Nice. Does that make sense? That does, mate. Thank yeah. you. That's great. Okay. Uh, now we're <laughs> up to. I think we're up to number seven. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Sure. Let's shoot are. at it. Okay. So uh, just trying to work out the logic of Jesus's. Um, words here, his argument, uh-huh. um, seems to suggest that Solomon is was not dressed as well as the lilies, mm-hmm. or put it the other way, lilies are dressed better than Solomon, Yep. and therefore if he, God dresses the lilies, he's going to dress us more, does yep. that mean we're going to be better dressed or looked after than Solomon? Mm. You can see how that logic kind of works, but yep. is that what Jesus is really getting at? Yeah, is there a promise here that you are going to have the best wardrobe ever? Wow. Um, kind of Snoop Dogg, you know, with his kind of <laughs> oh, stuff. He's looking pretty shabby compared to you. <laughs> am I showing my age there with Snoop Dogg? Possibly uh, I am. Yeah, shout out to all you um, kind of early 2000s people. Um, uh yeah, good question. Um, sometimes I, I think here Jesus is, is using hyperbole. I use the word polemic on Sunday. He's um, he's speaking big to try and get you to think big picture. Um, I think that the order of his argument here, it's, it's um, what we would technically call an a fortiori argument. That is, if, if it is true in one sphere, then or something is true in one sphere, then how much more will it be true in another sphere? And I take it that the... The sphere that we're talking about here is the is what is God attentive to? What does God notice? And if God notices the birds in the first example and provides for them, well, as if he's not going to notice one of his own children who are much more valuable to him. And I, and I think the argument argumentation is the same. If God clothes the flowers that are beautiful, well, as if he's not going to notice one of his children who might be lacking in clothing. God won't care for the flower more than he cares for you. I think getting into the details of the particularity of our clothing, you know, <laughs> lilies are pink, therefore all of my clothing will be pink and green. You know, that, that's that's missing the point there. It's it's if God cares for a flower, how much more in the in the sphere of His children, His disciples, will He provide for you? And that that's what it goes on to say there in verse thirty-two. The idolaters uh, uh, eagerly seek after these things, 
but your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But don't, God knows that He'll provide for you. Uh, but don't even don't concern yourself with that. Seek first the kingdom, and those things will come to you as well. Awesome. Now that flows on really helpfully to the next bunch of questions, which I think we'll try and attack kind of all together. Yeah, sure. So in terms of God's provision and verse yeah. thirty-three, almost sounds like a. a kind of a blank check you know if you seek first the kingdom god yep. will provide all these things yep. so here's the questions that flow from that sam yeah um uh believers do struggle with having to work for long periods and its impact and it impacts basic needs of well, i think there might be a mis- maybe its impact on basic needs of mm. food and shelter so yep. what's your response to that is god still providing yeah and then, uh, does this mean that we don't actually need to work or plan because mm. God's going to do it? So we just yep. put our feet up and wait for God to service and provide. Yeah. Yep. And okay, but there's perhaps Christians who don't have the basic needs met, um, whether that's people here or you know the mm. people, the, the people who are starving, poverty. Yeah. Um, so how do we make sense of all those issues in other verses? Well, let's see if we can tackle them bit by bit. Um, yeah. Do do believers need to work for them? Well, I think yes is the answer to that because Jesus says, look at the birds. And if you've ever watched a bird, God does provide the food, but the bird is working. After church on Sunday morning, actually, we were watching a few of us. Um, a kid had dropped a donut in uh, just outside the church at North Rocks and uh, a cockatoo spotted it, right? And it kind of came down thinking, fantastic, here's God's provision of breakfast for me. <laughs> and down it came. But the donut was kind of of a shape and a sort of size that the, the cockatoo couldn't quite pick the whole thing up. And it took about 10 minutes to kind of pick it up and then fly and drop it and then have to swoop right around and pick the thing up again. And then till finally, and we were like, hey, you got it. He kind of <laughs> scooped the donut off and then took it off to, you know, wherever the cockatoo had his nest. The, the cockatoos at work at that point, and you watch birds, they, they're, they're working for the worms, they're working for the fish, they're working... There's stuff to do. They have to fly. They have to go out and get it, and then they bring it home and give it to them. God is not just dropping kind of bird manna from heaven with the birds just kind of... Or donuts? Donuts from heaven. Well, it was a donut from a child. But he's not. they're not just falling straight into the mouths of the bird. There's still a... And that, again, that's... I mentioned Proverbs on Sunday. Um, the ant, which Proverbs tells you to go and have a look at, they kind of work out how to do your life. The ants are working. So... You do have to work, um, but as you work, it's that integration of God's pr- sovereign provision and our responsibility. Nice. As we work, God will provide for us. Um, so uh, yes, we have to work. Um, I, I think is is the first one to say there. And and there's a shrewdness as you work to like the ant. Sometimes put some aside for the rainy day. Ants don't come out in the rain; they get all stuck. So they provide and they they make sure those things are not their treasure. Or that they're not to be our treasure, mm. but. Uh, we are to be shrewd and careful and organized and uh, do what we can to have the food that, that God provides us with. That's the first thing to say. Um, what about then, how do we make sense of Christians who don't have their basic needs met? That's, I think, sometimes where people kind of go to kind of discredit the whole section and go, wow, I've seen some starving people in the Sudan or I've seen yeah. Christians in Syria, therefore the whole bit on money doesn't work, so I'll just go and chase money. Jesus doesn't know what he's talking Jesus about. Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about, so I'm going to make money my treasure and go get it. That I think that's missing the point here. Um, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus comes back to the birds and he says... Um, uh, in Matthew 10, uh, where are they? The birds, the birds. <laughs> oh, I can't find it. I thought it was 10. Um, 
find it in a minute as we talk. Okay. Um, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from God's will for it? Um, oh, here it is. It is Matthew 10. It's Matthew 10, 28. Um, 28, 29, uh, yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. Now that's interesting that the same birds that God provides for, God also causes to fall to the ground. Mm. There is a point in God's sovereignty over this fallen world where God sovereignly brings death. And that's, that's a hard teaching to go. God is not out of control when death happens, when famine happens, when difficult things in this world happen. God is completely in control. Mm. And in fact, Scripture shows him using those things uh, sometimes to destroy God's enemies, but other times even to punish God's people. Now, in the Old Testament, we have access to know what God's will specifically is in those things. We understand that in the famine of Jerusalem, when the Babylonians come and attack um, in the Old Testament, we know what God's will is there, that God is actually punishing his people for their sin. We don't always have access to God's will in famine in the New Testament because God hasn't revealed it to us. But what he does tell us is, don't worry, I'm still completely in control. And so I take it the truth here is that God will provide for a, for a starving person in a famine-ridden place uh, so long as he wants them to be alive. Um, that that's uh, God will provide for them as many days as He has planned for them. Mm. Um, that's hard, isn't it? That I is mean, a very hard teaching. Yeah. But we, know, but the thing we've got to come back to in that moment is we know the character of God and yes. the goodness of God and the love. Of, and God is never unjust. Mm. He does exactly what that He gives us so much actually shows how utterly generous He is. We don't deserve what we have. In fact, all us, all humans, in fact, deserve death straight away from the moment yes. they sin, that he feeds any of us for any period of time is a mark of his grace. Yes. Right? That's, that's common grace in the world. Yeah. Um, God should just kill us all and destroy the whole thing and start again. But he doesn't. He provides for us. So God is not being unfair even when those die of, of famine. That's what, actually what we deserve. Mm. <laughs> um, but God then graciously has given us so much and it's interesting. There's a real thread of teaching through the New Testament, which is that it is through the church that God, more often than not, provides for the poor. Um, and that's what you see in, in, in the narrative of the early church, that is Christians using what God has given them to look after others. And when the Apostle Paul kind of gets his commission from the, from the Jewish church, they say, go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Just remember this one thing, look out for the poor. And Paul says, that's the very thing I'm keen to do. He says in Galatians Galatians 2 or 3 um, yeah in that section and um, he um, th- there's this kind of theme and then you, you read the collection that, that God that, that Paul takes up from the uh, the Macedonian churches to take to the starving churches in Jerusalem and it, it, the church tend to care for all people but particularly for the household of God and so for those of us whom God has given much to uh, it is our responsibility to care for our brothers and sisters in Christ in particular and the world more gen- uh, generally. And that's why I'm so thrilled that so many of us at St. Paul's kind of gave generously to, to Compassion. A couple yeah. of weeks ago on Compassion Sunday, I, I take it that that's us as a church understanding this concept that God has given us much, so let's share it with those who, who don't have much. So when we see the poor and starving, it's not that Jesus' words are false here. It's not that God has failed. It mm. might actually be a call to us to say, 100%. can we be more generous to the poor? That's exactly right. You may well be. And again, sometimes I think we, we have changed. We've uh, rewritten what wants and needs are. <laughs> we, we say, oh, I need 
a bedroom for each of my children and I need a renovated kitchen and I need a new car and I need... No, you need food and clothing and shelter. And actually, we could learn to live with much less and be far more sacrificially different and, and radically countercultural in our generosity to the poor and to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, I, I think even, our, even one generation ago, our parents had much lower expectations of their standard of living and as our as our wealth in the west has grown and that's a great thing to, to be thankful for mm. but i think our expectations of what's normal and what's a necessity have changed radically so that you know a young couple getting married couldn't even dream of doing that unless they own two cars and a house and have all of their furniture and everything you know many of our parents my parents generation at least when they got married had like two deck chairs and a, and, and a you know <laughs> couple of cardboard boxes for the table they had somewhere to live they've clothes to wear and a job to go to and then over time built up the nice things that they have uh, whereas for many of us we're like no no what my parents had as a as a standard of living that's just the baseline that's necessity so i got to go and work my guts out to provide necessity uh when actually we, we've rewritten necessity at that point there's a little rant for you just to, finish this <laughs> to be generous i take it is jesus seek the kingdom be generous be radical and don't worry god's got you he he will provide for you so you can be generous terrific there thanks you. mate really really helpful stuff um feels like the more we dig into the sermon on the mount the harder it gets too the, right uh, the more complicated it gets yeah um and yet uh the treasure is there and yeah. it's kind of freely given to us through the grace of god through jesus that's it got to just keep our eyes on that uh, keep your eyes and the funny thing is like it's just 70 years here you know mm. that's not a long time you got 10 billion there and it's going to be glorious and full of treasure and that's going to be wonderful keep your eyes fixed up there and don't Sometimes at perspective, we, we get stuck here, I think, and totally. it doesn't help us, does it? So, totally. Yeah. Mate, uh, what can we look forward to this Sunday? Where are we headed with the Sermon on the Mount? Yeah, well, there's sort of two weeks left in the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, the next week is really the last of the teaching about righteousness. If you remember, uh, Jesus opened up speaking about um, righteousness and particularly about the law and the prophets and how they kind of played into the, the disciples' life back in chapter 5, verse 16. Um, he kind of rounds that section out in chapter 7, verse 12, I think. And uh, he, he says, uh, this then is the, is the law and the prophets. Um, uh, and, and so that's sort of the, the structural marker, the, the, um, the, the end of the teaching on righteousness. And so we're, we're going to be talking about, um, are you more interested in other people's righteousness or your own? <laughs> that whole log and plank yeah, thing going yeah. on there. And, uh, and are you for your righteousness depending on God or on yourself? That's the two issues Jesus is going to kind of deal with here. And then there's a kind of closer week, our last week in the Sermon on the Mount for the year, uh, where Jesus is going to say, look, there's really just two options here. There's no middle ground. It's it's way A or way B. You can say there's two ways to live. Um, you're either on the narrow path or the highway. You're either in or out kind of thing. Nice. Um, so there are our next two weeks, but this week in particular is the end of the teaching on righteousness. Okay, so guys, keep reading through Matthew. Uh, so we're into chapter 7, verses 1 to 12. Is that right? It's at 1 to 12, yep. yep. Uh, keep seeking first the kingdom. Keep encouraging each other to do likewise because we all need our uh, help in that. Uh, and thanks for listening to the extras. Keep asking your good questions as well. We'll see you next week. Bye.